0: the second episode of place and time a podcast about the relationship between rhythm and location it's easy to underestimate quite how much of an impact reggae has had on modern music a genre that set the foundation for contemporary bass driven sounds the london borough of brent has played an oversized part in the story of reggae and its development my guest today is kwaku a music historian specializing in reggae music and black music history and he shares his knowledge about the role of the borough of Brent in the story of Reggie and its place in music history. Like all these conversations, this was recorded over Zoom, and we had a few sound quality issues, but please bear with these as the stories Kwaku tells are worth staying for. I started by asking him to introduce himself.
1: Right, thanks a Andy, for having me. My name is Kwaku. Uh, I work two distinct hats. I'm involved in Black music and also global African history. And they do intersect, so maybe I, I should say a bit about both. So you probably know me for doing BritishBlackMusic.com Black Music Congress. That's BBMBMC. Basically, what that is, uh, it, it started think, in 2003 to pull our uh, Black music resources online. The internet has started at the turn of the century, so we thought we'd use that resource. And then we soon found out that online was not enough. So we started the Black Music Congress, which was a fiscal meeting to discuss things around Black music, which we started, I can you know we started that in 2003 at City University, where I used to teach music industry uh, courses. So that's how BB and BMC started. Then I also do something called BTWSC, African Histories Revisited. So I do a lot of things around global African history. So that could include something in Brent in uh, Northwest London, and it could include something in Jamaica or the US. So it's about African history globally. But I tend to focus on Britain. Because I, I think a lot of people know about African history that uh, is located in America or in, in the Caribbean. But sadly, not as much as what is happening in, in, in the UK. For example, they may know of the Montgomery bus boycott in the US in the 1950s, but know nothing about the Bristol bus boycott that took place in the 1960s in the UK. So I think and that's about me, done.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah. That I think I've probably come across both of your different organizations through the events you were running. You ran quite a lot of events over, over lockdown, um, which, were, which were great. Uh,
1: absolutely.
0: I have to say that, yeah, <laughs> 2020,
1: 2021, we discovered Zoom and we did quite a bit. But I have, I, I, I have brought the pace down, decidedly so, so I
0: can do other things. Right, so but it's still, still a healthy calendar of events up there, um, which are always worth checking out. And it's uh there always tend to be a bit of um a bit of learning with it with a video or a talk and then a bit of discussion afterwards, which I think is a really nice format to to do it in as well.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned the word learning because I think uh we have such a short space in life that if you go to an event, if it's not a learning forum, there's a waste of time, quite frankly. Of course, I'm in the music business, we are about entertainment, but I think it can be more than just entertainment. It should empower, it should educate. So my focus is not so much on the creative or the entertainment, as much as I use the entertainment bit, but it's about learning something, learning something from the music, from the history. So I'm glad you used the word learning, which is my agenda, to have a learning forum.
0: And one of the things that I never knew about before those events was, how prominent Brent is in the history of, uh, of reggae music in the UK. For anybody listening who's not from London, could you sort of broadly define the geography of Brent?
1: Right. Brent is in the northwest of London. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a barrow that is bordered on one side by Harrow, which is like the outer part of London. Uh, we've got, I think, Ealing, but basically it's North West London, or the young people call it North Weezy. If you've heard about Wembley Stadium, then we're talking about the Borough of
0: Brent. Brilliant, and yeah, most people won't know where where Wembley is. And when when did when did reggae music sort of first come to to Brent? How did the the scene first start? Right,
1: obviously these days you can't talk about. British African music or Caribbean history, without mentioning Windrush, so airports sort of the to 1948. But we have to say 1948, the genre of reggae had not been invented. In fact, the 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 most prevalent Caribbean music was calypso, which comes from Trinidad. So indeed, on the Empire Windrush, there were three or four key Cari- uh, calypsonians There was a lady called. Mona Baptiste, who was a singer, there was uh, Lord Beginner, Lord Woodbine, and Lord uh oh, the other one's gone out of my head. The, the famous one, Lord, Lord right. So uh there were a couple of musicians from Jamaica, but they're not doing music. One is called Reese, uh Alfon Reese, who was actually a jazz musician. So rather that, there were big band music, uh, one was called Stephen is Stevens Combo, his name. Communists or something like that. So it was big band and jazz music. Reggae had not been formed. So basically, we locate reggae in the late 1950s, a fusion of mental different Caribbean musics, some European musical styles, and it sort of coalesced in the early 1960s. So by that time, there was a big population of African Caribbeans, particularly Jamaicans, in the UK. So, whilst the music was starting in Jamaica, uh, even though we didn't have the internet, there was still communication between African-Caribbeans in the UK and African-Caribbeans in Jamaica. So, it wasn't long before we were starting to do our versions. The first African-Caribbean we know to have owned a studio in the UK was uh, Robert's, and he had a studio called Planetone in print in a place called Kilburn, 108 Cambridge Road. Sadly, one o Cambridge Road does not exist anymore. It was broken down to develop the area into buildings for the community, but it is a pivotal, if you look at location in terms of the regular history, because I'm jumping ahead and we can come back. 108 Cambridge Road was owned by a Jamaican of Indian descent, Lee Gupto. He, ah, was, right. yep. he was uh, an, an accountant. He was not in the music business, but he rented it to this guy called uh, Son Roberts. And Son Roberts had a little studio called Planetone. So he had a label and he was recording people, the local uh, musicians. So that was not just reggae, all types of Jama- so West Indian music. In fact, I shouldn't say West Indian, I prefer Caribbean. It was uh, recording the beginnings of reggae, which was ska, actually. In 1962, reggae had not come on the same. What they were doing was ska and different types of car- car- Caribbean music. But that same building 108 is important because at some time, we all know of Chris Blackwell, who founded Island Records? But Chris was trying to look for some place out of his flat to uh, run his business because it was expanding. And Son Robert's introduced him to Lee Goptel. So he ended up renting lots of rooms in, in, in 108 Cambridge Road. So I'll say by 1965, 66, in fact, people locate reggae at 1968 because you had Ska, then you had. Uh, was what, what Rocksteady, which was just for a, a couple of years, 67 68, and by 68, it moved into a style called reggae. But all this music was being recorded and being released by labels in Brent.
0: Right, brilliant. Was it, was it reggae, when it, when it moved from Rocksteady to reggae, that the scene in Brent really took off?
1: No, I, I, I think the scene was happening because, remember, uh, we talked about if we want to start uh, looking at Caribbean migration 1948 with Windrush, which I, I, I don't like to happen because there was migration before before then, and the Empire Windrush was not the first. Where my history consultant had, I have to put this into the mix, the mm-hmm. Empire Windrush was not the first ship to bring African-Caribbeans uh, to, to Britain post- Uh, World War II, uh, I've located about three or four that came before that. But nevertheless, by the 1950s, the the late 1950s into the early 1960s, there was, uh, in fact, it said that there were, I think, about 100,000 or so migrants from the Caribbean by, I think, 1966. So that means there was a big community of African Caribbeans, and as a majority of them were from Jamaica. So they are consuming whatever music was happening in uh, the Caribbean, whether it was calypso, mento, ska, uh, rocksteady. So all these were happening, were happening the precursor to reggae. So one says that there was a big market before reggae came in. Remember, mods, the skinheads were consuming um, ska music in the nineteen sixties, well right. before uh, it turned into reggae.
0: Of course. Yeah. Brilliant. And was it something to do with the, with the area? Was it just, you know, You started getting lots of people making the music and they sort of almost spurred each other on. Um, was there sort of healthy competition between bands and sound systems and you know, people involved in the scene?
1: Okay. Before I answer that, I'll just jump back to add to uh, the, the, the last point. Scar. Yeah. One one of the first crossovers was recorded in in Britain, My Boy Lollipop by Millie. That was in reggae. At that time, it wasn't called reggae. It was called either Blue Beats. Mm. That was because there was a label called Blue Beats that released a lot of our records, star records, either recorded in the UK, but mostly from Jamaica, and so the, the, the genre acquired the name Blue beats. So in the UK, we either call it Bluebeats or Scar Records. Mindballer Pop went as far as number two in the pop charts in the UK and number two in the Billboard Top Hot 100 as well. So just to say that before reggae, there the, the was Scar. Now, coming back to, I think the question you were asking was that was that more to do with Brent? So I can answer in the context of Brent. Your last question. Certainly, yeah. Well, if it's in the context of Brent, then I'll say yes, There was a healthy competition. Because remember, Sonny Roberts was uh, a, 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 a single man, well, I do not say a single, obviously he had the fine but I mean, uh, it, it was an individual like others from the Caribbean who had an interest in music, but they had their day jobs. In fact, the way that Sonny, Sonny Roberts met uh, Chris Black was that he was doing work in his, in, in his flat or, or his, his, his property because he was a carpenter, a builder, you name it, he built sound systems. So to cut a long story short, yes, people knew each other. So mm-hmm. Chris knew uh, Sonny Roberts, for example, and it did not ups- uh, worry him to recommend the same building for uh, Chris to uh, locate Island Records in the same, same building, 108 Cambridge Road. Producers came from Jamaica They would come to Sonny Roberts and then go upstairs and and, and see Chris Black or whoever at that time was running Island Records. Yes, it was healthy competition. It was healthy competition. Remember, the business wasn't that big at at, at that time. Mm. So people were, as the Caribbean or the Jamaicans say, well, they're trying a thing, you know, whatever, to sell a record. That included sometimes going house to house to sell records and people sometimes didn't have enough money so they paid in installments can you believe that absolutely before you even ask the next question talk about entrepreneurship if they came to a roadblock they did something about it so one example being that the mainstream record shops were not uh, stocking reggae so for example or uh, what, what is his name, Lee Gopto started setting up record stores across London and outside London, Musicland, Music City. These were record shops that sold reggae and other forms of, of, of black music. When the radio stations, of course, in 1967, we started having uh, Radio 1, but before then, Paris stations like Radio Caroline, they, were, they played the odd scar of the, the odd reggae, but not in, in sufficient numbers. They started their sound systems. So that was the alternate way of consuming reggae. So they were entrepreneurial and finding ways of exposing their music, whether through record shops or specialist record shops or through their sound systems.
0: If you compare it with today's um, music industry of you know uh, trying to get engagement on a Facebook post or something like that, it's, it's a very different thing, knocking on people's doors, trying to send them records or, or creating your own opportunities, which... It sounds like these guys did in the early days.
1: Yeah, they were active, not just sitting in front of a screen uh, to to push things or to to engage. They had to uh, walk on the streets pretty, pretty much.
0: Who were some of the sort of prominent reggae artists from the from the Brent area um, who, who who were involved in this scene?
1: Remember, when we talk about British reggae artists, mm. it includes artists that were born in the UK or artists that were born in the Caribbean, particularly in Jamaica, who were relocated to London. Yeah. Some of them obviously went outside London, but most of them lived in London. So many of these artists, for some time in their lives actually were based in London. So uh, Akabu is uh, an all-female band. So they have the distinction of being one of the first or one of the world's first all-female reggae band. They came from the area. They're still going in different permutation. Dan White uh, runs the brand. Theorem, Music Theorem, BBMC, Brent Black Music Cooperative, that is still going, they have a studio and they've really uh, revamped that area, that's in, in Wilson in, in Brent, that's still going. Alton Ellis, for example, well-known uh, right singer that came from, 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 from the Rocksteady period, he, he relocated to Brent, so he also did records in, uh, in, in, in Brent for quite a while. And more importantly, he did help some of the, lo- the, the, the local artists. You got bands like Aswap. Aswap came from Brent, though. parts of them, I think, came from Labrugrove, which is in the adjoining barrel. Of course, we can talk about Bob Marley, because mm-hmm. even though Bob Marley was well-established in Jamaica, he was an international artist. So he came to the UK and got signed to Ireland Records. It was on the back of their two albums that were released in 1973 that they started being the superstars that they, they became. So if there was no Island Records and uh, there was no reggae scene in UK, uh, it may not have happened for Bob Marley because he was big in Jamaica. And a lot of people that knew about Jamaican music at that time, in the 60s and early 70s, bought his records, but he was no way a star then. Jenna Case, one of the queens of Lava Strike, so too is Carl Thompson. And um, yeah, her album, Hopeless in Love, was released on uh, a, a, a label that, that was based in, in Brent. And I think it's just marked its 42nd anniversary. So it's now on, on CD. Trojan re released last year, I, I, I do believe. So there's been a whole raft of, of, of artists that have come uh, through Brent.
0: When you mentioned Bob Marley, I think I'd I'd read that his first couple of albums didn't really have the commercial success um, you know, that, he, that he later achieved.
1: Absolutely, because he had released uh, a number of records in Jamaica for different producers, Coxin you know, or whatever, but they were very much niche affairs. Mm-hmm. And obviously, when it got signed to Ireland, one thing you have to say, like it or hate it. And I have to say, initially, the reggae purists did not like the releases on Ireland records because uh, Chris Blackwell took a creative decision to make a more poppy rock he was looking at the college audience. So that's predominantly Caucasian uh, audience or the Western audience. So you had some rock guitars, you had a clavinet on, on it, all those things to make it something that a, a, a rock consumer could could. could relate to but of course now that it's been proven a success I think even the hardcore roots reggae uh, fans now love love Bob Marley but not everyone did like uh, what uh, Chris Blackway initially did uh, to those albums from 1973 onwards. A name I, I think I'll be remiss not mention is Derrick Washington Derrick Washington was born in Jamaica but he lived in Brentford for a long time I think he died two years mm. ago as it, I think a consequence of, of, of COVID, but he was also a friend of Bob Marley and he helped people like some of the musicians from us to meet Bob Marley when he was li- living in Brent. So the Washington needs to be mentioned. He released two albums in the mid 1970s on Virgin. You may remember the Virgin became a powerhouse in reggae by releasing dozens and dozens of albums and also having, um, what should I say, a standalone re- reggae album, The Front Line.
0: I think that at some point you mentioned as a plaque on a house for where Bob Marley stayed. Absolutely. Um When I did my book, I knew
1: where the house was, but because it was a private building, I didn't mention the number, but subsequently it's been mentioned, it's been published, so I can mention the number for any <laughs> Bob Marley our uh, fans who want to visit is 12 The Circle in Easton, NW10, 12 The Circle in Easton. So there is a plaque for him there. And also I have to say that we moved out of the borough, to the neighbouring borough, Royal, Kensington and, Ch- and Chelsea. So in Labro Grove, where their first two albums, and in fact, m- most of the early albums were recorded, called Basing Street or the Island Recording Studios. We also uh, unveiled the plaque, I think about three years a- a- ago, but that was dedicated to the three members, the three original members, that's Bob Marley, Bonnie Whaler, and Peter Tosh. So there's also a plaque, but that's outside, outside the barrow. So coming back to Brent Barrow, yes, there is a plaque for Bob Marley, and there are quite a number of ragged plaques in Brent. Did you know that, for example, uh, Bonnie M, one of the big pop reggae artists, had uh, a, a singer from Brent, UL. As a consequence, there was a plaque for her. One of the first reggae bands uh, was Cimarron. Simron, I believe, started in 1967, 1968. They backed all the visiting reggae artists that came to the UK to do shows or to record. They've also got a plaque in there. And there's a plaque for a couple of people that we know as Jama- Jama- Jamaicans. For example, Dennis Brown. Uh, Dennis Brown did live in London for some time. He did record the swirl in London. So there's a plaque for uh, Dennis Brown in, in, in Brent's well.
0: Moving on from the artists, if we thought about the the business side of it, so the the studios and the and the labels and the distributors, there's quite a lot of activity on that side in Brent as well.
1: Absolutely, and most of them look were located on a very short uh, part of the road. Uh, if you come to Halston, Halston is uh, what can I say? <laughs> it's. Well, well, it's not too far from Wembley, but the High Road, and uh, Craven Park Road, just uh, just a short uh, stretch of that road had new in the seventies, particularly had numerous record shops and record labels. As of now, there are only two of these shops standing, and and kudos to them because they've been going for over forty years. In this day and age, where most record shops have closed down, there's one called Hawkeye, and Hawkeye, what we did in 2017, I do believe, or 2018, was to plant the reggae tree. So there's a tree in front of Hawkeye, which uh, I think is 25 Craven Road, just to mark International Reggae Day. International Reggae Day takes place first July each year, Mm -hmm. and a remit of the International Reggae Day, which is an initiative from Jamaica, is green, planted tree. So we symbolically planted one tree in front of Hawkeye's uh, shop in, in, in Halston. As I said, it's one of the few shops that is, is still going. But in terms of labels, yeah, you had things like Planetone or orbitone You had... Jetstar, which at one time was the biggest reggae company or distributor in the world, right. so you had all these businesses. So if it wasn't a record shop, it was a regular label, or it would be some call it Paris Station, some call it community stations. But there's so many other around that place, and mm. there's still one now, just not too far from the, 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 the reggae street called Roots FM. So they had all the infrastructure to service mainly reggae music, but other forms of black music. A lot of black music uh, fans came through our uh, brand. Oh, there was also Creole Records. Creole Records, I Wanna Wake Up With You, that went to number one, that was one of their records. So they were on the pop and they did a lot of crossover because they were essentially a pop la- label. So they had a lot of hits uh, with, with reggae, Cre- Creole Records. So there are a lot of uh, reggae related labels in print.
0: In, in Wow, and there's, I, I assume somewhere like Hawkeye Records, I, I haven't visited, but I'm going to put it on my list of record shops to visit when I'm when I'm in London next. Day. I assume, I assume if you go there, you you get music which you won't find anywhere else. It's going to it's, it's going to go very specialist in terms of its music selection. Absolutely,
1: because it's a physical shop, so you get physical products. So they're not relying on things like, uh, what should I say, MP3s and, and and streaming. You go into a real record shop and you, you get physical products. So yeah, you're going to hear things that are, are not easily available. Uh, and I I was in that shop a couple of years ago and I heard that people come from Japan and they're prepared to pay £800 pounds for a particular Twelve inch, so there's crazy things wow. happen with some of these ra- rarities. Yes, so those are the shops in which
0: you get some of these rarities. And, and I suppose half the thing with the with the record shop is also the, it's the people behind the counter because they've got the knowledge. You know, they're they're sort of Abs- like-
1: absolutely if you go the shop is owned by a, a, a guy called well hawker H- 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 mm. but the guy or his partner that's been a shop for some 40 years on it's uh called uh jerry and 40 years uh, of knowledge it doesn't come easy so whatever you want the chance that uh jerry will probably know the answer
0: fantastic wow that's- uh, did, did you find that the the record shops were a bit of a community hub as well? When I worked at a record shop back in the, in the 90s, it was, that was where everyone met. All the DJs would meet each other. So everyone's coming to pick up tunes. Relationships were formed because of those connections made at the record shop.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I remember when, when I, I did the Black Music History Project, the DVD, the interviewed a couple of people, and there's a guy called Paul Dawkins who... Um, it's a solo singer, but used to be with band. And in fact, he was one of the early members of Asworld. And he said, on a Saturday, uh, you go into the shops and you could see some of these Jamaican stars just walking down the road. And people used to spend hours just to get maybe a, 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 a few records. The point being that they had to listen, listen, and listen before they decided what, what they wanted. So, yeah, it was a, a, a community hub, to some extent, particularly on uh, the weekends. And then another guy I worked with, Ray Williams, he was into reggae, he was into what people call big people's music. So middle-of-the-road type music. Or, and he said, so he had the label called Vasco Records and he used to release. So talking about the reggae shops in, in housing, he said he could bring hundreds of records to the shops and they'll be gone in a day, a wow. day.
0: And that's you know that that's some serious you know se- serious uh, numbers, there. Absolutely,
1: yeah, and yeah. we're talking about maybe just one shop, not a whole lot. Of shop, one shop, if they're hot on a particular track, uh, to take hundreds of of of, of, of one re- recording, and between Friday and Saturday they will be gone. That's the hunger people have for consuming music. Where where would these people
0: hear the music? Would it be on the radio? Would it be at dances?
1: Right. That's a good question, because uh, it was not until 1979 that we had a label called DBC, Dread Broadcasting Corporation. And again, when my history consultant had, I have to put this out there, a lot of the times when people talk about Dread Broadcasting Corporation, they sometimes say 79 or start in the 80s. But what they say started in labor growth, that is wrong. It started in the shed of our uh, who passed away fairly recently, Abbaing Road NW10 in his back garden in '79. They were broadcasting on Sundays on the MW mid uh, medium wave at, at, at that time. So, Dread Broadcasting Corporation started in Brent before moving elsewhere, including our. Uh, Label Grove. So from that time onwards, people could tune in and hear the music on such a station, and then there began a proliferation of reggae or black music stations. So that was one way. But the main way in which people consumed the music was going to sound systems, which were in clubs, so specialist reggae clubs. In Brent, you have something like the Apollo. The Apollo was owned by the, the brothers that started uh, Jetstar, for example, the, the, the Palmer Brothers. So they'll go to all these specialist uh, venues, and then the sound system uh, operators had the latest records they wanted to play. I'm not quite sure if you came to one of my programs where we looked at... um. The incident at the Carib club, for example, the Carib club was in Brent across the in in, in Creekwood. They had a three sound system clash, for example, Lord Coos, um, Suffrah Hi Fi, which is Dennis Bovell, and one other Hi Fi that is is gone out out, out of my head. But yeah, so these clashes in, in the sound system will bring the winner. And also the favorite tracks. And then on Monday or Friday, people will go into the shops and buy the records.
0: I'm assuming the um, the sound system guys, quite a lot of time they, they tried to keep those tracks secret as well, didn't they? Because they didn't want their competitor sound systems knowing what, what songs they were using.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know if this came up close when I did the presentation on the curriculum, but um on that. Friday, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Dennis Bovo got someone to get one of the reggae producers. And I'm thinking, who could that be? Could that be Strike Lee, Bonnie Lee, Strike Lee, who's also passed recently. But anyway, for me not to put the wrong information here, let me not mention the, the producer. But what they did was that they, pretty much kidnapped the producer by saying that we'll pick you up from the airport, I believe it was Heathrow, and make sure that he was captive. So he, they had the exclusive or what they had. It, he, uh, he had brought from Jamaica <laughs> so that they could play. Because one thing about these Jamaicans, you, you talk about uh, competition. I think in terms of business, people are fairly friendly, but when it came to sound systems, they could be very, very competitive because you needed the edge to be the winner. So what they would do, as, as you said, yeah, they kept things anonymous by scratching out the names of, of either the title or the artist. So even if the competitors saw the, the vinyl, they wouldn't know what it was. But to go one step further, this is what Dennis Bovell, who, who was the owner of the Safra Hi-Fi, did was that, on that fateful night, uh, October, whatever date I think it was the 12th, or uh, 1974, I do believe, He pretty much captured this uh, producer who'd come from Jamaica, made sure that no one had access to him. So, because he knew later on, he's come to sell his record. So he would sell it to other people. That was a given, that's why he's come to London. But uh, for that night, they had exclusive that they could play fresh from Jamaica that no other uh, sound system had. So that gave them the edge for that night.
0: So so they so let we let him free after after the event. Of course, of course. Because, <laughs>
1: they just because like... he he came to play to pay sorry to, to, to sell his records. So can I tell another thing? Yeah. These so produce these producers were crafty or a, a, a bit sh- shady. Uh, I'm gonna put that I'm saying this for smile, so I'm gonna put in yeah. quote max a bit shady. <laughs> it was not unusual for them to come to Palmer, which was one side of Brent. Yeah. sell so one track to them. You could literally walk down to Trojan, which was on the other side, Nislin Lane, sell the same track to another producer. So it ended up at times, with the same record came out on different labels. So I'm talking about pretty much the 60s. I'm sure by the early 70s, that 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 thing had gone out out, out, out of the window. But certainly, in the early days to the music business, some of the Jamaican label producers saw the same track multiple times to people in the UK. (laughs)
0: Let's go through the, the events of the Carib Club, because I was going to mention about how there was some prejudice against the community at that time, uh, particularly from the police, which is what happened in, in the Carib Club that evening. And you you did a great presentation about it. So maybe just a, a, a brief outline of, of what happened on that night and its effects further down the line on the scene and, and the borough.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um... So as you said, I did a program. One of us was called 1974. That Curry Club story, another Clubland horror histories. Anyway, what happened was that um, the Curry Club was about. It was also, by the way, called Bertins because uh, the, the older listeners may remember that there was a chain of clothing. Uh, shops called Burton's. Mm-hmm. So in in um, cricket Broadway there was this big building. Incidentally, if you around the place, it's now an Iceland. Right. <laughs> but at the top, at the top was uh, rooms that were were hired as the Carib Club or or, or Burton's. So on Fridays, certainly on the weekends, um, it, it, it was the dance dance night. Uh, the, the, there was. Some sort of skirmish. What happened was that apparently the police was chasing uh, an African youth and they claimed that he ran into the club. So to cut a long story short, there you guys are dancing and the cops come in. It's not a conducive atmosphere for enjoying yourselves. No. no. So there was some scaffold. Mm -hmm. And the police called for backup. And the, 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 so the show was closed. Sadly, each and everyone that went down, there was only one way to go, get out of, uh, out, out of the building, through uh, the, 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 the stairs. And apparently the police were lying on either side and they gave uh, the, the revelers a beating as they tried to get out of, uh, uh, out of the venue. Oh dear. The sound system that was disrupted was Dennis Bubbles. He was not arrested, but days later, when he was in Labrador, someone said, hey, the police are looking for you. Okay, not thinking about anything, and this is the innocence of Dennis. And it tells that 30 or 40 years afterwards that he really believed that sometimes when people say, oh, the police fitted them up, oh, you must have done something. Yeah, you, you know, there's no smoke without fire, that type of thing. So he went believing that he hadn't done anything they him to help them, and the long and short was that they wanted to pin this thing on someone. Hmm. So it was either he uh, said gave a name, any name apparently, or uh, from his circulation, the police were happy to have any name. That's why like they could get someone. And he said he couldn't because it it, it doesn't know who's supposed to have shouted whatever that was supposed to have been said in the in, in the in the in, in the club that meant that precipitated the the. Mm. let's say the noisy affair, whatever cropped up and the altercations, the police or, 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 or whatever. Mm. To cut kind a of long story short, he ended up being charged. Right. So not only did they pick up a lot of people, but they picked up, oh, well, no, Dennis went to the, the, the police. So he became one of what's called the World 12. Right. So this, this uh, case went to the magistrate's court and ended up in the Old Bailey. There are uh, three, I think in the end, most of them were found not guilty or whatever, or let off, but three ended up being jailed and it took a while for them to appeal and that kind, that kind of thing. So he ended up serving uh, time for something he swears. And I do believe in honesty that he was not involved in it, only to, that he was a sound operator at that uh, material mo- moment. So he served time for something he did, he, he did not commit. and. That was the reason why I did other programs like the police criminalizing Afghan youth, because yes. there's a whole instance of Afghan youth being criminalized by the police. As you know, in the last few years, at least some of the uh, cost celebs have come to be exposed as uh, they didn't do what they were fitted up. So we we have the Stockwell Five, we we, we have the Oval Four. They've Mm. all been exonerated in recent times, but they all sell time in in prison because they're fitted up by the police. Can I, I know we're going off script, but can I just say, as part of my uh, history consultant hat and I'm part of BTWS, the African Industries Revisited, we did a program on this and then we got the, British Transport P- Police because they had a guy called uh, Detestive Sergeant Ridgewell. He was the leader of the uh, bank cops. That fitted up a lot of Afghan... By the way, you know, I use Afghan to mean people of Afghan heritage. Mm. So they may come from the Caribbean, but they're of Afghan heritage. I just call them Afghan. So we got the BTP, Brit- British Transport Police, to issue an apology last year. Not only that, we've also got them to institute a bursary to go to some of African heritage to study law in a British university. That the burs will be announced sometime this year. But please, we got uh, a full blown, unequivocal um, apology from the, uh, the, the commissioner. For right. uh, the 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 British Transport Police, so I've gone off script anyway. So yeah, that's, Dennis that's, ended up ended up in jail like many of, 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 of these guys, Um yeah, but yeah. thankfully he was strong enough. He came back and was he, he continued to do
0: music. Well, that's it, and Th- thankfully that's that's the case because you know his music is is fantastic as well. Um, it's great. You know, what you were just saying about the British Transport Police anniversary is that's a great way of of turning something that was very negative into something that's going to benefit the community. So you know, kudos for that. That's that's a brilliant, brilliant um, resolution.
1: No, uh, no, no. I, I appreciate that. But I also say it depends on the leadership. Mm. The The commissioner, uh, the present commissioner of the, of the uh, I don't know the titles, I'm calling a commissioner, but the head, I don't know. Uh, Maybe as I, I talk to you, I'll see if her name comes up. D yeah. of whatever her name is she has, she she seemed genuine about trying to do something about not just historical wrongs, but Mm. trying to do racism as of now. She sent me a document that the police are supposed to be dealing with, and she did a blog, and maybe I should say the blog, because whilst a few months ago, the Commissioner of Police, the Metropolitan Commissioner of Police, um, Commissioner Dick, was saying that she didn't want to admit there was institutional racism in the metropolitan police. This uh, lady not only admitted to it, but yeah, was upfront about now we do know it it happened and it happens. We, We want to go forward and want to put systems in place to mitigate this. If we get a lot of heads of police with that attitude, there's going to be some positive change, but if you have people like the former commissioner who was intransigent in not admitting that there's was institutional racism in the Met Police, then it's very difficult to see how we can move forward.
0: Well, that's it. If if you don't identify there as a problem, there's no way it's going to be resolved. So it's like, yeah, I I totally totally agree with you on that one. Um, and it's I think it's maybe something that that that's that still going on. I know um, with drill music and grind music, there's been some you know, um, just singling out particular music genres um, you know, for, for a slightly harsher treatment than than other music genres. And it's, you know, racism and, and you know, it still goes on. And it's very easy for people in positions of power to target cultural events, which is where they end up targeting music events.
1: Yeah, yeah, you yeah, absolutely right. But again, uh, I'll just go back a bit. I'm hoping that your audience is, uh, has a wide range of, ages. Mm. So in that case, you may remember the 1970s. So it's about marginalized musics and marginalized peoples. Mm. So the police, or even though they're supposed to come from all, for all parts of the communities, sadly the heads come from a narrow part of the communities. So what they say is what goes. So you remember the 1970s, punk music was targeted. Bands mm. that the Sex Pistols couldn't play anywhere. Uh, so uh, it's the same thing the eighties and nineties where whether it's uh you talk about drill, mm. and uh, it's only recently that the form six nine six was uh, was abolished. Form six nine six was a racist form that was targeted at black music. Yes. So and 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 and, and so you had to talk about the, the, the initial one they are amended by the initial one had to talk about not only the genre the music genre but also the ethnicity. what has that got to do anything? It was very racist and uh, thankfully uh, it, 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 was, it was abolished but yeah, uh, sadly police have got a history of targeting marginalized people and marginalized music until they become main, until they become mainstream to some extent. Uh, I dare say I, I can't see them stopping a stumzy concert, for example, but then stumzy now will be playing a certain venue that is mainstream. So maybe uh, it doesn't make sense for them. And they'll be playing to mainstream promoters yeah. who the, who cannot be easily bullied by the police as opposed to uh, small community uh, uh promoters and clubs because clubs were threatened. There's the dice club in Croydon that were told not to play bashment. Bashment is another form of reggae. Maybe it's a bit hardcore and a bit, uh, what should I say, fiery incendiary. So I can understand that. But to tell the club what music to play, I mean, they're mm-hmm. overreaching, but these things are realities.
0: Was that, was that the, the police said not to play? That? Yes, in, wow. in
1: Croydon. Were, yeah, literally, and we've got that on video because he did a a, a, a BBC, a BBC programme literally telling, yeah, this music is not to be played. And essentially, uh, 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 what should I say? Things called bashment, which is the hardcore of mm. dan- dancehall, reggae, reggae music.
0: Yeah, but so, so in effect, censorship.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And can I just jump back since I've just checked this out? The lady I was referring to was the British Transport Police Chief Constable Lucy DRC. QPM. I don't know what QPM, but I think it's an award that police people get for merit or whatever. But uh, I'm happy to send you that blog that she did because she was quite upfront about... uh, be, the, 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 the reality of racism, both historic and, and present, and how to uh, engage the community to um, mi- mitigate it. So I have to give a respect for being receptive because we could have had a, a hard fight with another chief constable who, if like our, our Commissioner Dick, is just blinkered and does not want to accept the reality that institutional racism exists and has existed.
0: So well, one thing I was getting sort of related to the, in, in, in a way, the the, the marginalisation of the venues and music was from from some of the research I did regards Bristol, there was a big um, a big culture of blues parties there. And I was wondering if that was the same in Brent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, you can't see me, but I have to say I'm, I'm smiling. There's a big <laughs> smile on my face because as part of our uh, International Reggae Day, one of the things I do is that I'm the UK coordinator of an an initiative called International Reggae Day, Mm -hmm. and it takes place every 1st July. So this year, what we did was that a lot of the stories tend to be London-centric. The histories we mark, like obviously we mark in Brent London. But the the, the reggae uh, has a huge catchment area across the UK. Mm -hmm. So we we, we said we'll try and sort of um, counter the London-centric histories, and we've got something called BBM Reggae Stakeholder. So we have a stakeholder meeting, and we got someone who said, yeah, he's happy to tell the story of Bristol. So I ended up working with him when we did a short video, and I can also send you the link to put into your breadcrumbs. Uh, That looked at the history of uh, the influence of reggae on Bristol music. So obviously he talked about sound systems, he talked about the clubs and the issues, the small clubs that, for example, uh, Bob and played that and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, if you talk about uh, about the clubs, I think every pocket where there was an African-Caribbean uh, community had some sort of uh, club does wasn't too far and it could w- well be someone's uh, basement so when we talk hmm. about clubs it's not necessarily a purpose built building right. it could be someone's uh, 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 basement or even if, if it's their one bedroom they'll just move the furniture and, and make space so they were called blues or shibins. uh the idea being that obviously uh, most of the mainstream clubs weren't giving them access or, or they could not afford it so they had these things. And I have to say the difference between an ordinary party and, and this is that uh, you paid for your drinks. <laughs> right. And that's, that's the way you talk about entrepreneurship. That is the way we, these people also amass money to sort of buy houses and stuff like that. So, okay. yeah, absolutely. People mm-hmm. bought houses and stuff from uh, pop, popular blues because this was something that people would come regularly at, 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 on, the, on, on the weekend. So mm. some serious money could be made selling uh, the, the the booze. Yes. So yeah, the 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 things, because housing particularly had a, a, a high concentration of African. Car- we tend of bricks. We tend to think of Brixton, mm. but house in the northwest land also had a high concentration of African Car- Caribbean. So naturally, there were blues parties all around places like like housing or closer to where I live, N- Nizin. Yes.
0: Brilliant. And and they could they could go on for, for some time.
1: They could go on for some time. <laughs> and that also includes the clubs. And as I'm talking, I'm, and I mentioned missing, I remember the Apollo Club. I think I probably went there once mm-hmm. around Christmas. And I remember us being this club, it finished, and by the time we got out, it was daylight, you know, and <laughs> uh yeah. And I somehow I remember that. Years come by, you didn't have night buses as regular as you had today. So, after when you went to these clubs, you had to walk because today mm. in London, we pretty much have some lines that are bus routes that are 24 hours. But in the 70s, uh, if there were any night buses, it was fine. Few- Few between so often you walked. I remember walking miles from a party coming out 4, 5, 6 a.m. when people were getting ready to go to work and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so we came from these parties rather late.
0: Fantastic. I, I saw there was a. I remember there was a series on BBC a couple of years ago with Steve. Steve McQueen was it Small Axe? Um, yes. Series and and it was all all five episodes of that were fantastic. But the the blues one. It, it felt like it was probably quite uh, an authentic interpretation of, of how a party like that would be. That it showed, you know from the from the setup, you know, everyone getting ready to to like you're know, going through the music, and then almost like the last few revelers leaving the building at the end of the night. It seems like quite a, quite. A, was that was that a good sort of characterization of what a blues party would be like?
1: Right. Interesting enough, I haven't seen it, ah. but this is it. I have read comments about it and what say is that kudos to Steve for mm. bringing this into the mainstream. The mm. same goes for the, the Lover's Rock, because until he mm. did that, a few people head of Lover's Rock, there's been going over 40 years. What I read is that some people are very critical of it, oh, it wasn't authentic. You know something? You never please everyone, because everyone's got a different lens at looking mm. at these things. So I don't think it's... Steve McQueen could not have pleased everyone because everyone that went to a blues party would have a different recollection. What we should give credit to is that he was able to represent that history within a mainstream arena. It's been shown in America uh, on on, on a big big network and stuff. Mm -hmm. These are stars that are hardly seen in UK, let alone internationally. So... I don't have time for those that criticize. They may be right in their observation, but that does not detract from what Steve captured. He had a lot of what you called uh, advisors, Mm. consultants from the dancing, from the clothes. So they captured... Part of that hit, that history, and to 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 cap up what I'm saying, you can never please everyone. Everyone sees things from a, di- a different lens. So I'd say, even though I haven't seen the, the the films, I respect Steve for getting the opportunity to capture those
0: histories. and I suppose the you know, much like producing something for the mainstream for television, or or like we were saying earlier with the commercialization of Bob Marley's albums, and people going against it, if without mainstream culture, there's no subculture. So if you give something to the mainstream, it then gives people something to go and investigate. And that's when they discover the subculture and then get involved in that scene.
1: And you're absolutely Mm. right, because I have read so many people have written to say that, because Lovers Rock was off their radar, by the way, for those that Mm. don't know, Lovers Rock is a subgenre of reggae. And we claim it came from the UK, yes. Mm. But more importantly, when I was reading a lot of responses to uh, Steve McQueen's, Steve McQueen's uh, Lover's Rock film, some people had never heard of Lover's Rock, the genre, till they saw the film. So that is the point. We can't always preach amongst ourselves. Steve had the opportunity to take it overground to people that would yeah. never have heard that the Rock, the genre. It didn't start today, it's got a 40 year history. So kudos to the man. Yeah. Yeah. The sun rides up the day, I look how the moon rides up the night. I look how we live from day to day. As some of us giving thanks and praise. Yeah, one- And i know
0: without a doubt the man must survive he the bro I've, I've, I've got just one one more sort of question about um about brent and, and reggae and i was just regarding the sort of legacy from uh this vibrant scene how how is the, the sort of reggae music scene in, in brent today and and maybe i suppose the wider music scene because i can imagine that the ripples of this scene in the 70s and 80s is maybe Birth some music of slightly different genres, but maybe we still with a maybe a, a low end um, feel to it, or you know, which which has a you know, reggae sensibility to it almost. Does that make sense?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does. But I have to say, obviously, thank goodness that oh, this is audio, so you can't see my grey heads, because I am an old, old oldie. <laughs> so uh, with that, I was glad that I was able to document the brand black music history, but. I think we ended. I don't know when we ended, but uh, goodness knows. Uh, in
0: the
1: uh, let's say there's at least a ten-year gap that we, we didn't cover. So there's a lot of things that have happened subsequently that I really can't can't speak to. I am one of the advocates that claim that housing Brent is the capital of reggae in Britain. Mm. That is historical so I'm happy to promote it but I'm not going to be a uh, blinker to say that re- Brent is where reggae is happening right now. We've mm. got the and and the the historical facts we've got the antecedents of what's happening today but it's happening in different places, and remember, reggae is splintered into things like sound systems, and there are some big sound systems outside London and, and, and whatnot. Obviously, uh, there are still remnants of uh, artists uh, that came from Brent that are, 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 are still still happening. Are, are still happening. Sweetie T. Are uh, so 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 many. But I'm not going to say that reggae has a swing, as I say. So Brent has a swing for reggae right now in the 2022s or in the, 21st, in the 21st century. Things have changed. The internet has also made geography less important as it was. No one has to travel to the heart of housing to buy a record anymore, for example. No one has to travel to the heart of Brent to go and see a special show at the Apollo Club, for, 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 for example. So uh, and because of all, all that, I think Brent does not hold the swing as it did for reggae, but nevertheless historically, Brent or orhausen is the capital of reggae history in uh in, 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 in the u k
0: definitely yeah that, that that's that's definitely evident from from what we've talked about today and um i think you can, you can almost see the the influence of reggae and uh, and you know the, the family of of genres based around reggae. In modern music as well, because you know, a lot of modern music has heavy baseline production values, you know, even things like uh, people rapping, you know, that that would have come from the MCs toasting. On.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And what I'll do, I'll also give you the link to the video I did with uh, G- General. Uh, General D, uh, on, on, on Bristol. And you can see the influences. Massive attack, for example. That mm-hmm. comes from the sound system culture. So uh, reggae influenced what we call EDM, electronic mm-hmm. dance music, in terms of house music, mm-hmm. uh, the, the bass, the sound system stuff.
0: Exactly. Well, I, th- I think it's, it's definitely enriched the... you're know, Just the whole British music scene, or if not the global music scene, just having this, this influence, it's, you know, it's fantastic.
1: Absolutely. And uh, just that uh, Bristol video, I think it's just about 10 minutes or f- less than 15 minutes, is a macrocosm of uh, how reggae music or sound system, reggae sound system culture influence music period, music, and that's not just black music. Even pop musicians are using elements that come from reggae in terms of bass and, 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 and sound system culture. Can I, again, it would be remiss of me if I don't mention two names, since you said who are some of the current people. Some of the oldies that I recognize that are still going include Gappy Ranks and General Levy. Gappy has not been well, so I don't think he's as active as uh, he can be, but certainly General Levy. And General Levy does reggae, but he's on onto all this type of dance music things. So he can be on the drill music one day. He can, he, he can be on the on, on hip hop track the next time. And he's still very active. He was born in, 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 in Brent. Andy, no, no, it's been a pleasure talking to you and I hope your audience appreciate our conversation then they can follow some of the breadcrumbs, who knows where that might lead them to.
0: thanks to Kwaku for taking part in the interview. There are links to his event series, videos, and a playlist of music from Brent in the show notes. Next time on Place and Time. Rob called me up and and he's not much for small talk and and he's like, "Let me just get to the chase." I'm like, "Okay." He's like, "We want you to join Pendulum as not just a drummer but a writer with us um, and be a part of everything." And you're going to have to move to the UK. KJ Saka talks about his journey into the world of drum and bass drumming and how he joined one of the biggest electronic acts on the planet. Until then, thank you for listening.